0: This is Erica in Edmonton, Shannon in Durham,
1: and Chip not wearing cowboy boots.
0: And you're listening to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5, episode 26, A Distant Star.
1: I'm just saying, I think that cowboy (laughs) boots are probably against the uniform coat. That's the
0: point. Oh, yes. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. He's out on the rim. You can be a rebel. You can wear cowboy boots on your spaceship if you want. <laughs> and yeah. I'm not a rebel, so I am not wearing cowboy boots either. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, welcome back folks to our our deep dive into Babylon 5 as we go through episode by episode. And um we are we are officially kind of moving our way into season 2. Uh, besides the cowboy boot agenda, uh, how are you guys feeling about season 2 sort of in general?
2: I'm enjoying. Uh, I'm enjoying that we're still taking care to continue expanding our characters and our knowledge of the characters, uh, even as we get into deeper in the plot and the story. Um, I think uh, this episode, DC Fontana does a pretty good job, given the various tasks that she's got to do that we'll be talking about in a few minutes. Mm -hmm.
0: Chip, what about you? What is your overall feeling of of season two now?
1: I'm having a weird moment right now because all that. A uh, new season energy that we had at the start, and all of a sudden, this feels like Babylon Five is supposed to feel, and all that. I'm getting a little bit less of that because we're two episodes into some standalones, and mm-hmm. it's starting to feel like uh, season one has sort of come back. And I know that you can't do arc, 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 arc all the time until you get seriously into the story then that's a distinction that we've talked about between Babylon 5 and the shows that are coming out now that have fewer episodes and have to cram all this stuff in. But I do feel like the show is starting to resemble season one a little bit more than it was.
2: I, I don't know that I agree with that. Um, yes, we have standalone A plots or uh, and maybe even standalone B plots, but I feel like there's more stuff being dropped in that is going to get woven into the major arc uh season one we definitely had episodes where hardly anything that was coming in the future was referenced and we had to really dig and look for connections um i think you know there's plenty of potential connections um all this um all the hooks are being thrown in the water waiting to draw in the fish it, it hangs together for me better yeah i think for me it's it's
0: I can see what you mean, Chip, by the feeling of, of season one, because it is kind of a more, I don't want to say throwaway, but but standalone, yeah, episode. But I don't know, I just, I feel like it somehow has like a, a colorful blanket thrown over it or it sparkles more or something. So it, it, it does feel like, like it's standing on its own, but there's a little bit more tension and excitement sort of weaved in with the standalone things and and I don't even think that that's just a function of the the B plot with the the creepy space crabs that we still don't understand yet. I think it's it's just I don't know. There's something in the air. And maybe that's just me reading into it cuz I'm excited about continuing, but
1: I don't know. I will say that this is the first time that I've ever heard uh, Babylon 5 referred to as a sparkly blanket. <laughs>
0: Well, it may not be the last. <laughs> We've got a few years to go. <laughs> well, to to get into it now, if this is your first time jumping in with Babylon 5, welcome. Uh, what you need to know about the show in general coming into this episode. Babylon 5 is a giant space station that functions like a huge city in neutral space. It's reached by traveling between jump gates in hyperspace. Captain John Sheridan runs B5, but he's only taken over recently. Among the many alien races populating the station are the Minbari, a rather stoic race with bald heads and bone ridges. Minbari ambassador to Delenn, however, cocooned herself in order to transform into, well, whatever she is now. She definitely has hair, at least. Security chief Michael Garibaldi is recovering from being shot in the back, and commander Ivanova is recovering from a broken foot. And that brings us to the fourth episode of season two, A Distant Star in which Captain Sheridan's old friend, Captain Maynard, brings his giant explorer-class ship, the Cortez, to B5 to restock with supplies before heading out for another trip to the Rim. Maynard is surprised to find Sheridan as a desk jockey, which sends Sheridan into a bit of a pout spiral. When the Cortez has a mechanical failure and loses contact with the hyperspace beacons, Lieutenant Keffer and the Zeta Squadron of Star Furies employ old-timey lifeboat rescue techniques to save it. Kaffir does make it back, despite seeing and almost being killed by a mysterious space crab. Meanwhile, the Minbari on the station are not so sure they should be looking up to Ambassador Delenn anymore, as she may not even be Minbari at this point. Meanwhile, meanwhile, Dr. Franklin is keeping tabs on Delenn's health, as well as that of the command staff, and he decides everyone needs to go on a diet, excuse me, food plan. Especially <laughs> Garibaldi. But Garibaldi really wants to make his special, rich, high-calorie, fat-filled birthday dish. Eventually, Franklin relents, and all's well that ends with banyacauda. <laughs> and that was a distant star. And every time I watch that story, I get so hungry, and I've still never actually <laughs> tried banyacauda, and I, I really, really need to one of these days.
1: Uh, they stopped. I heard the word anchovies, and I was like, nope, nope, nope. <laughs>
0: Oh, No, sounds yeah. good to me. I'm, I'm still in. <laughs> oh well. So this story, there's a lot of sort of fun, silly things that that happen, but it's, it's like we said, not a momentous story. It really does mostly focus on kind of character development, expanding our characters, uh, like Shannon mentioned, and I appreciate that too. I'm a big fan of that. So, I guess I'm, I'm glad to be leading the ship here because I am excited to talk about the characters. Uh, and first, I would like to start. By talking about our guest star, Russ Tamblin, as as Captain Maynard. I will admit my bias right up front here. I was hugely excited to see him the first time I saw this episode and every time since because I'm a big Twin Peaks fan and he played Dr. Jacoby on Twin Peaks, whom I loved. And this character really isn't terribly far from dr jacoby in some ways so i just kind of enjoyed the experience of seeing him on screen acting a little bit quirky um and it's worth mentioning that uh that russ tamblin is also the father of amber tamblin whom i really loved on joan of arcadia Um, apparently she was on house later as well so that just gave me some extra excitement about this episode i seem to remember chip at one point saying something about how he wasn't looking forward to russ tamblin chip how did this go for you
1: i was a about to I was afraid that you were about to take an accusatory tone with that question. I don't know. Um, <laughs> he wasn't as bad as I feared. Um, let me explain that I've always had an issue with people, guys, especially with this sort of braggadocio about them. There's this sort of this I'm an alpha male and I'm um, and I'm super confident I'm going to make fun of you a little bit. I've got issues going back all the way to elementary school about that sort of thing. And um mm-hmm. Captain Maynard is somewhat that kind of a character. He's a he's a space cowboy. And I, I I just I just have bits of issues about that that could probably be solved through therapy and becoming more assertive in my personal life. <laughs> um that said, he is believable. He for the most part um, cowboy boots notwithstanding, I just thought that that was kind of really goofy. It, 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 what What are you? Are you an Earth Force or are you in the 4077th Mash? I'm not sure. Where's your Where's your bathrobe, Captain?
2: It's your It's his shorthand.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it's 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 the it's JMS or DC Fontana's or Joe Johnston's shorthand. I don't think it's a I don't think it's human shorthand. I don't buy it. No sir. No ma'am. <laughs> That said, uh, long-winded way of saying, um, I did warm to him as the episode goes. Uh, I do like that he goes from the beginning of his visit to Babylon 5, where he's just sort of casually, not meanly, but not sensitively either, sort of uh, poking fun at Sheridan for having gotten a desk job. To when he's about to leave the the station and the Cortez is about to go off and get lost, uh, he actually turns the tables and says, you know, uh, I've got bureaucratic meaninglessness and uh, boring days on my ship, too, and paperwork and all that stuff, and you may actually be making a difference. And that warmed me to the character a lot.
0: Yeah, I... I I like hearing you say good things about it, even though you you started with a a little bit, because honestly, I was just so clouded by my joy at seeing him that I really had trouble looking at his character with any kind of a critical eye. (laughs) Shannon, how did you feel about uh, about Captain Maynard?
2: Um, I thought he did a pretty good job overall. I liked that there were things that they were able to do visually, subtly, to create a real character very quickly. The cowboy boots, yes.
1: That's not subtle. Sorry, I'm (laughs) quite muting now.
2: It was subtle enough. Um, But also the fact that he apparently, whenever he was drinking, it was always out of a water bottle. You know, it's like, you know, he wasn't drinking cocktails or drinking. You know, it's in the opening shot, he's got a water bottle in his hand when he tells his officer to send the message. And then in Sheridan's quarters, Sheridan's drinking his clear continuity uh, (laughs) alcoholic beverage, but he's got another little water bottle. So, you know, that, that was something that leapt out at me a little bit. Like, this is a guy who's going to keep a clear head at all times. Who knows? But, you know, like I said, it sort of added a bit to him. I also really liked how, in general, um, some of his reactions struck me as accurate or appropriate uh, when Delenn comes up to, to ask Sheridan about the meeting. Maynard's very first reaction is he stiffens and he's like, "Ooh, membari, you know, it, it's his instinctual, immediate back off for somebody of his age who lived through the Earth-Mimbari War. Um, But he stays polite. You know, she makes her request, and Sheridan is obviously being very friendly to her, so he gradually dials down his initial reaction to be more polite, because he realizes this is not his territory, and he doesn't have a say-so in this. So I liked little subtle things like that uh, that really helped along.
0: And you know there's there's one thing speaking of him being sort of the guy with a bragdaccio and 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 thinking he knows it all that actually reminds me of a line toward the end of the episode or later in it anyway, where Sheridan is talking about him and explaining uh, how he was as his first commander. Mm -hmm. And he says, and there's a line there that I wonder if Bruce Boxleitner gave a completely different emphasis than it was meant to, because he says, you know, back in those days, I thought he knew everything and he did too, Mm -hmm. is the way he says it. Like he actually knew everything. If he would have said that a little differently, I thought he knew everything and he did too. It it takes right. on a different meaning, meaning that he thinks he knew everything, which I don't know, for some reason, I feel like maybe that's what DC Fontana kind of was trying to get at. And Bruce Boxleitner just took it in a much more earnest direction. Not sure. Did you guys notice that at all?
2: Uh, I noticed it. I'm not sure that uh, I thought about the fact that, you know, shift, shift the emphasis and you shift the meaning of it. I don't know if it I was like I, I'm trying to remember when direct, it was in the episode. The,
0: the direction for this one was, Stephen characterized it as a bit pedestrian. Yes, um, very and much. I, I completely, completely agree. So mm-hmm. I just wonder sometimes when, when we we get, you know, line readings that are a little off, that there was one we had talked about a few episodes ago uh, that Sheridan had kind of kind of done weirdly but that was in the middle of a very long tracking shot through a gazillion corridors so it makes sense that they wouldn't go back and do that one over again just like there's a another tracking shot through the corridors in this Mm -hmm. where the focus goes completely out for a while and then comes back in and yeah I mean that was a really long take so I guess they just didn't have time to try it again Um, so I just I wonder if this is a a direction thing more than an, an acting choice I don't know possibly could be
2: I noticed one thing that um, one of our commenters was complaining from uh, back in Revelations about um, Sheridan's sister calling him Johnny. She, he, the The person didn't really care for – if I remember correctly, they felt it was sort of belittling the character in some way. Like, why would you call a grown man Johnny? Uh, Maynard does it here, too. So apparently it was something of a standard nickname for Sheridan when he was younger. So, Yep.
0: And, that. Yeah, that never, never bothered me. Well, speaking of Sheridan, let's let's talk about him. How did you guys feel about his sort of turnaround? I mean, for the first few episodes, he seems pretty wide eyed and eager to to get to work and, and do things. And, and then suddenly Maynard shows up and says, Hey, you're a desk jockey. Ha ha ha. Um, and and then the very next scene, he's just Mr. Pouty Pants with Garibaldi. Did that did that work for you? Did it seem okay, or was it too sudden? Chip, what do you think?
1: Vividly, well, I thought that that was really good. Sheridan is being reintroduced to who he used to be, just like a couple of months ago. And you know, he used to be out on on the rim with the Agamemnon. Captain Maynard's even further out uh, on the Cortez. You know, this is uh, this is. I don't know that it's sort of alpha male, beta male stuff going on here. But at a time when the shiny has worn off a little bit and the painful... This happens in any new job. You go you go into the new job and you're excited to make a new beginning. You've got a sense of purpose. You're here for a reason and you're going to make the best of it. And then the shiny wears off. And then you get somebody who actually tells you that I never figured for you to be a desk jockey. And that's its come down. That is a a genuine come down. So I bought it, and I loved the way, for the most part, that uh, Bruce Boxleitner played it. Because uh, he is absolutely peevish. I mean, he's biting Garibaldi's head off over this stuff, and he does the same thing to Ivanova a little bit later. And um, it's something completely new. It's something that Garibaldi's not really prepared for because he doesn't know Sheridan. Um, When We'll talk about Ivanova a little later, but I love her reaction to it. But Garibaldi's just, I mean, Sheridan's just having a bad day. And he's taking it out on the people around him. And that is very believable to me.
2: Yeah, what I liked was this was the right time for this to happen, I think. Uh, We've had a few episodes in very first episode, Sheridan was questioning whether he was the right man for the job. And rightly so, you know, with things happening with the Mimbari and what they have happened if he hadn't been there. Now he's questioning whether, thanks to Maynard throwing it in his face, essentially, is this the right job for him? So it's time for this. It's, It's a good thing to continue the character development. And I really liked it as well. I think Sheridan's uh, reactions, you know, like you said, to Garibaldi trying to eliminate all of these petty little things that represent the downside of the job that he's discovering. Um, And I also like that um, between, I think, Ivanova sort of stopping him in his tracks with her discussion and then Delenn going philosophical on him at the end, uh, along with being able to successfully rescue the Cortez, that sort of reinvigorates him a bit uh, as we see he goes and, like, clears his desk and gets everything taken care of and feels like he's in the right place again.
0: It's kind of like we're, we're getting another moment of doubt. So we had the moments of doubt from Garibaldi when he didn't think maybe he belonged on the command staff anymore. And and now we're getting Sheridan experiencing some of the same stuff. I I think maybe you guys have talked me into, into liking that a little bit better. I think it, for me, it was just... He has been this puppy dog all the way mm-hmm. along, like just, you know, even in the scenes with with uh, especially, I guess, in the scenes with Captain Maynard, when Maynard is talking about the, the mysterious stuff out in the room, like his eyes are wide. He's like a little kid mm-hmm. being told a bedtime story and he's really excited about it. And it seemed to me that he was that excited about everything up until this episode. And then all of a sudden he starts pouting. So for me, it was it was a little abrupt. But when you you explained it very nicely, you guys. So I, I guess I, I buy it a little bit. Bit better now and i do think that that box Lightner's performance was really good in this this episode um at the beginning when he's sort of explaining things to to captain maynard it's basically just one big recap of all mm-hmm. of the stuff that's happened to him since he got here but it didn't come off feeling like an exposition dump like i always do when it's garibaldi <laughs> trying <Right>. to <laughs> trying to tell those things to me it just sounded like two friends you know somebody you know telling a, a cute anecdote about all of these things that have happened
1: it's a it's a sensible way to it, it's a it's a real conversation that would really happen. This yes. happened, this happened, this happened between friends. Uh, JMS isn't always the most artful at uh, doing those info dumps, but uh, this one, Dorothy Fontana really nailed.
2: Yeah, she there's did. between that and um, we'll, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about it later, but the fact that we learn a great deal about the science. Of this universe, how hyperspace works, how ships are traveling through and what they need in order to get from point A to point B. We learn a heck of a lot of that in this episode, but it's woven into the narrative of the rescue. And it doesn't feel like exposition anymore.
0: Yeah, I think uh, I want to give props to DC Fontana because this was this was really solid. And, you know, I'm thinking that maybe one of the secrets to having an exposition dump that doesn't feel like an exposition dump is to have the character who's dumping the exposition talking to a character that would have no way of knowing that information. I think some of the problems I've had in previous scenes with Garibaldi is he's talking to one of the other people on crew hmm. who already know this stuff. And he's just, you know, as rec- you know, Bob. It for hashing it out.
2: Yeah, recapping mm-hmm. it.
0: In this case, you know, Maynard's been out on the rim for a while. There's no way he's going to know any of that. And, mm-hmm. and you know, Maynard knows a lot about, about the science of, of hyperspace and building jump gates and stuff. And, and Sheridan probably wouldn't. So it, it goes back and forth pretty nicely. Anything mm-hmm. else about Sheridan before we want to move on? Can't think of anything else at the moment. All right. Well, next, let's talk a little bit about Garibaldi, who has our sort of, I mean, I feel like it's it's not exactly an A plot and a B plot and a C plot, because when you get Dylan in there, it's more like an A plot. And then you get like a D plot and an E plot or something. Cause <laughs> it's, it's kind of, kind of incidental and minor. But you do have a uh, Poor Garibaldi having to go on a diet and then everybody else following suit. Did you guys find that too silly or did you were you as amused by it as I was? Because I found it pretty amusing.
2: It was in general, it was amusing. I think it was kind of I felt like that little subplot was headed for two payoffs. Uh, The first payoff being the scene in the restaurant where Sheridan and Ivanova and Garibaldi all switch plates and then Franklin, you know, comes and sees them and they all switch back. You know, that's like total slapstick comedy kind of thing. Ha ha. But for me, the payoff that worked was um, at the end with Garibaldi explaining about his father. And then he and Franklin get to enjoy this great dinner together. And that just sang for me. that That last scene really worked really well. It continues to show Franklin... You know, taking his doctor role so seriously this time in a less dire situation than we've seen sometimes in the past, but Franklin's character is still very much, you know, doctor, doctor, doctor. I'm going to fix all of you.
1: I didn't care for it nearly as much. Um, I I do like the very last scene uh, with uh, Garibaldi and Franklin in Garibaldi's quarters. That I love that scene. That's that's fantastic. But leading up to it, it's too jokey it's too broad for me uh, i was looking i was actually looking forward to the scene where they where the three of them are swapping their dishes and then have to swap it back and then when i'm actually watching it it feels like an snl sketch at that point it just mm-hmm. and maybe this is pedestrian direction but it just doesn't work for me nor does when Garibaldi is supposed to get sentimental, and he's talking about his dad. I don't know that Jerry Doyle sells it all that well. Um, it's, it's something that sort of came out of nowhere. We didn't hear anything about his dad or anything like that until, until this time. It just felt tacked on to me. Uh, but that last moment of genuine warmth uh, and friendship between Garibaldi and Franklin um, uh, makes up for all of it.
2: I also really liked um, the extra actor, uh, Orwell, the guy who was uh, yes. c- collecting supplies. Um, the guy's name is Antonio Nunez, I believe, if I remember looking it up correctly. Um, and I thought he kicked butt as far as having, you know, it's a small scene. It's a small role. It's small scenes. But he does it so perfectly. Uh, I looked it up on IMDb. This gentleman has had a long career and is still going mostly in comedy roles and um, I and I thought he did a fantastic job.
1: A rare I, triumph for extra casting in Babylon Five.
0: I know he was amazing. I just like I was I was writing him in my notes immediately because he was mm-hmm. so good. And then Stephen is just like I like this guy. He's real. I liked his performance. So <laughs> yeah, thumbs up all around for yes. Orwell. there.
1: Compare that to every single extra on the Cortez.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, that pilot guy or who, whatever he was, the navigator was just, type. Yeah. Oh my he was yelling. God. You've got you've got Maynard. You know, Russ Hamblin standing right there, and he's elevating his voice a little bit because it's a tense situation and it's supposed to be loud. And then you have this actor standing right next to him, yelling back in his face at twice the volume. It's just like, yeah. Uh, were oh, there? I, were were I they expecting supposed... that there
1: was going to be more foley in the background? Were they expecting more chaos than the director and the sound actually... designers actually delivered? <laughs>
2: Actually, the the funny thing was, JMS actually complained about that on the Lurker's Guide. Oh, really? (laughs) All he had wanted was some sparks and some smoke. And he told the person who was in charge of the special effects this. But the day they filmed, JMS was elsewhere handling something else. And the guy goes full out with big sparks and flames. There weren't supposed to be flames in the background originally. So, you know, JMS complained about that. So I don't know if, you know, the actors were prepared for that much and that may be why. But what got me is the guy was obviously trying to convey panic stricken, but it just came across as way too much caffeine and jitters. It it just he didn't sell it.
0: Yeah, and I can't give I can't give him uh, the benefit of the doubt for the Foley, because I mean, when you're acting in a scene with another person, you need to pitch your performance to match the performance of that other person. And he was so much larger than Russ Tamblin was that it just absolutely didn't work. If they would have both been at that level, then I would have been like, Oh, they should have put more Foley in. Um but if they would have both been at Russ Tamblyn's level, I would have been, hmm, this is fine. That would have worked. So sorry, sorry, extra random fellow. Yeah. But like I said, it
2: was generally most of the the Cortez staff just felt off key or off time. Like when um, they get the news that the battle that the fighter has found him and Babylon five is able to rescue them. And there's this one woman in the background and she breaks out into this huge smile about a second and a half too soon to have actually heard that. You know, it's just, you know, it all felt a little bit off.
0: Oh, boy. Well, they can't all be winners, unfortunately. <laughs> no. Let's 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 move on to a a, a different part of the uh, the show with a very different different tenor, and that would be Delenn. We've got the little Delenn plot with the Mimbari, not so sure that they should be following her, and um, I mean, she's certainly still acting like a Mimbari because she's not giving them any information. She's just saying, you know, um, what is what is the line about obedience? Um, I have it in my notes somewhere. Uh, Unders- like under- understanding, understanding is, is not-, not required, only obedience. That's, mm-hmm. I mean, from an outside view, she seems pretty minbari to me, but and, they uh, they may not be buying it.
1: And no, <laughs> and they're not, and that's really fascinating because uh, the minbari is like, "Uh, no. I'm not sure that I buy this. I'm not sure that I buy you. You don't don't give me this obedience is required stuff because I'm not sure you're who you say you are anymore." Um, and that catches Delin flat-footed. In, in Revelations, when we last saw her, uh, she didn't act any differently from sh- the way she acted in the entirety of season one. She had authority. She was comfortable in her position of power and all this stuff. And she starts that. And that's such a really good performance this time because she starts doing the same thing and she doesn't know what to do in the face of ...of just this little bit of defiance. She's un, she's a little more unsure of herself. And, and as we get through the rest of the episode then... ...you know, she's, she's not comfortable with being poked and prodded by Franklin. Um, she tries to recapture her equilibrium with the other Minbari... ...and she sort of loses that. By the end of the episode, she's having a rather more open conversation with Sheridan... Then she did a lot of the times with Sinclair because she would al- she always still had this sort of, I'm in Bari I'm secretly Grey Council. She's more humble when um, she catches uh, Sheridan in the Zen garden.
0: Yeah, there's mm-hmm. actually in that scene with him while they're walking and she says to him, the universe knows what it's doing. The look on her face says she's doubting that um, or at mm-hmm. least she's trying know, to convince herself. It's gonna turn. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And that yeah. is definitely not the kind of thing that we have been seeing from Delenn before her change. Mm-hmm. Shannon, what do you think about Delenn here?
2: Um, like you said, this is, you know, now that, the, no, now that the novelty of actually having gone through this process is over, she's now got to start dealing with the fallout. Um, You know, on the one hand, Franklin is trying to keep an eye on her health and make sure that everything is going smoothly. And on the other hand, all these other Mimbari are beginning to be like, what did you do? What did you do? This is new. (laughs) We don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. So, again, kind of like with Sheridan arriving to a point to question whether um, the job is a good fit for him. Delenn is arriving at the point where she's questioning a bit. You know, okay, I've I've jumped through this hoop and I can't go back. Um, what the heck am I going to do now? So there, we we see some of that in her this episode, and I think that's appropriate.
0: Yeah, and I think maybe Sheridan responded a little bit to that too. There's sort of a resonance between both mm-hmm. of them, kind of being in the same place because after the after their conversation, he has sort of a you know a half dreamy nodding. You know, she's she's I can't remember the exact line, but something about how. Um, have a good long conversation with her is, is is a good thing or something. When he's talking to Ivanova at the very end, I I liked mm-hmm. that reaction.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And speaking of Ivanova, um, that was another point where Stephen piped up during the uh, during the episode when Ivanova asks Sheridan what is going on with him and, you know, would you like to talk about it? Which I thought was really neat. That's mm-hmm. very much cementing home the idea that Ivanova and Sheridan have, you know, uh, a shared past and they know each other previously. So she mm-hmm. asks him, do you want to talk about it? And, you know, then he goes off on his I command starships, not cities in space rant, which which I thought was very, very good. But then, you know, she gives it back to him and Stephen just said nice work, Ivanova, under his breath. So, yeah. so I think he really appreciated that scene. Did you guys uh, punch the air as well?
1: This I- is Fantastic! This is the episode in which Susan Ivanova comes into her own, and it, that, that, that sort of surprises me to say this because it's she's not the focal point or uh, of any of this. But you know, she's been promoted; she's settled into that. Um, she's taken on more of the meat and potatoes of the diplomatic stuff, and Sheridan was complaining, "You can't you handle this?" And she's like, "Of course I can handle this. I'm just keeping you informed." You know, but then. She is calling him on his BS. This is something exactly. she would never have done with Sinclair. She was not that com- she was not comfortable enough with him, and she's comfortable enough with Sheridan. But also, he's been there long enough, and she's very much aware of her role as a second in command. That up with this, I will not put. You are being a child. <laughs> If there is a problem here, you need to fix it. She is now in a position where she has she feels comfortable and assertive enough to lay that down. And it is it is fantastic. It is one of her best performances so far.
2: And she does it twice, not just in that conversation over the different ambassadorial staff things, but later on when they are waiting to try and hear from the fighters whether they found the Cortez and Sheridan's first instinct is to tell her that she should take a break. I mean she's got a broken foot, maybe she's been on deck longer, and she's immediately like, Uh uh-uh, uh, I'm sticking it out too. You're staying, I'm staying. So she does it in Why a couple don't of you different take ways. A break? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So,
1: yeah, I mean, and she, and it's not just, it's not just her saying, her standing up for herself in terms of her own stamina and all of this stuff, but she is again uh, calling Sheridan on his attitude.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I like, I like the fact that we have gotten to this point organically because, yeah, she wouldn't have sort of done these things before. And we really, I feel like we've seen her blossom as a character so to speak because you know she was th- had her hair up all the time in, in previous episodes like way back at the beginning of season one mm-hmm. she was much more stiff and formal and slowly but surely we've seen her hair down more often we've seen her relax with her co-workers and and then you know now she's been promoted and she does a, a good job with the whole you know green scarf purple scarf thing and and she really is at a point here where it makes sense for this character to be more forthright and stand up for herself and also you know call the boss on his bs a little bit so i I love that we have gotten to this point the way that we have gotten here
1: it's what i keep coming back to characters acting like grown-ups um Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. this is and this is great even as slapsticky as the diet or the food plan stuff is you see push and pull between all of the characters you know i don't like what you're doing well i don't like what you're doing you know it's this sort of back and forth thing and they're all sort of, you know, franklin's operating from his position of you know, a leg- of legitimate authority, you know, as a doctor and he's being all doctory and the others don't like being treated like children, they grudgingly respect his authority, but you know, the, it's those sort it's it's those sorts of things where characters have conflict and yet they deal with them more or less as grown-ups would. Sometimes ill behaved grown-ups but still like grown-ups. <laughs>
0: Well, speaking of our our last grown up, we have uh, Lieutenant Keffer, whom we haven't seen a whole lot from, except for you know he had some dinners with uh, with the command staff previously in a <laughs> couple of lines, um, but here he here he has a, a much bigger role. He he's you know part of Zeta squ- Squadron that has to go out and, and rescue the Cortez, and then it is it is he has now seen this crazy space crab thing out in in the void in the middle of nowhere, and I you know I have said in the past that I'm not a big fan of his. However, I really do like from a character standpoint, I love the idea that he was smart enough to shoot in one direction as the Star Fury is spinning to, to yeah. show the Cortez which way to go. I just I love that touch. So yeah, he I, has won me back a little yeah,
2: bit. Yeah, I really thought that Both, you know, give us a little more of the character. He's not just, you know, a dumb space pilot. He's clever enough to think of that. He's clever enough to triangulate from the second sighting of the, of the crab ship, uh, which way he ought to go. So I like the fact that he's shown that he's not just a stupid, mouthy pilot. Um, I also thought the actor did a better job. Like he's maybe settled into the role somewhat. So um, Mm -hmm. I was I was much happier with um, with presence this time.
1: One hundred percent agree. I thought it was a good performance, and uh, again, another another grown up, another guy, another character being a professional. Um, So yeah, strong.
0: Yeah, and I think he actually had better lines to work with this time. Um, Even just the stream when they're they're sitting at dinner with him and his commander and and the rest of them talking uh, about stuff. The the questions that he asked. I don't know. They just sounded more naturalistic and made more sense than some of the lines he'd had before. So he yeah. had a little more to chew on, which I think was helpful. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, have any other characters you guys want to touch on before we turn to – I just want to talk about the pretty explorer class ship. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Let's talk about the Cortez. Yes, Pretty
0: graphics. Oh, it's it is not only gorgeous, but it has its own theme. As soon as it was shown, and that the you know the music started up for it, I that that little bit of music actually reminded me of some of the music in Dune, David Lynch's Dune, for some reason. Um, so I don't I don't know why, but that it made it feel all the more majestic to me every time it came on. And and Stephen actually said, you know, when they play this theme every time they show the Cortez, it feels like there's another show that Captain Maynard is the star of, and this is just a crossover episode. So we're getting a
1: little. A <laughs> that's a yeah. good. That's a good way of looking at it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. There's enough there, aside from the fact that it, yes, it's yet another redress of CNC to uh, be the uh, to be the deck of a ship and that awful matte painting in the background of the one shot. Uh. But. Uh, but yeah, it does feel like world building is happening here. Uh. uh, uh yet again, second season is really good about expanding the canvas of the show and showing us what happens so now we have an idea of what earth force is doing out on the rim and the design of the cortez really reflects that it's 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 as it's huge it's huge it's as long as the space station it is designed to be a self-sustaining community in space that's going to be all the way out there in the rim uh dropping jump gates and expanding the reach of the earth alliance and stuff like that um it's solid it is absolutely solid and fascinating
0: yeah, I think that it's it, it in itself is just a great uh, ex, uh, a great way to world build a little bit because we get all of that stuff about the jump gates, you know. Because I never really thought like how where do they come from? Well, they have to be built, of course. And and now we know that. Mm-hmm.
2: And I like between um, just graphically uh, a lot of the things in this episode really worked between the design of the Cortez and how it was shot against Babylon 5 to show us perspective, things like that. So it wasn't just exposition telling us that this is a big damn ship. But also uh, in the hyperspace, you know, we get like long um, instances, long scenes in this hyperspace area. They actually designed the spinning sort of vortex feel of it, this gravitational well that Sheridan mentions. They actually visualize it. Um, It just opens up again world building you know we've got this um it's kind of like when you're going through one of your computer games and you move into the next square and the next square lights up because now you can see so much more territory it's just like here's another light bulb and we've got yet more that we can chew on
1: the neat thing about hyperspace in babylon 5 is you know in star wars hyperspace is just clouds and stuff like that in babylon 5 there is absolutely no reference point geometry does not work um, the background uh, is is completely wrong, and you can you can imagine ships getting lost in hyperspace. It makes it a little weird for me when you have moments like Keffer, you know, shooting in hyperspace, and that makes me wonder if you know physics would really allow that. But um, but yeah, uh, hyperspace is clearly scary weird stuff uh and you've got to be a bit of a space cowboy to do it regularly which makes uh rust hamlin's character all the more believable so nice Mm -hmm. little nice little uh synergy between um the cgi that foundation imaging provided here and uh what the story is asking of us
0: absolutely also it's pretty I mean, mm-hmm. yes, I'm sure it would be very scary to be in it, but I really like the hyperspace scenes just because I think they're gorgeous. Um, so, except for then when we get a creepy giant space crab appearing, so that that seems to be the other thing that's in hyperspace that is to make it to make it scary. Um, I, I, you know, I don't know a whole lot to say about the, the spacecraft, except that I just think it looks really, really cool and incredibly terrifying. And I think it works even better in this hyperspace environment than it did uh, when we saw them a couple of other times destroying yeah. like, Narn ships and stuff.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is the clearest look that we've kind of gotten at them. Um, mm-hmm. The There was the attack on Quadrant 37. Um, and so we saw them silhouetted against the planet surface and things like that. But we got some decent time. You know, there, there's that first flash when um, the fighter wing commander gets killed, when you don't see very much of the spacecraft at all. Uh But yeah, then... It's just like
2: a drive-by, like uh, Sigma 937 and Catherine Sakai.
1: Yeah. Uh But then when Keffer sort of follows it and tries to get a reference point, we get to see much more of it. And it is ominous. It is absolutely ominous. It is a great design. And you can... You can see, you know, the. It, it just sort of justifies the reaction that uh, Captain Maynard has when he talks to uh, Sheridan about what he's seen out there on the rim.
2: And it builds as well for for both of them. We've seen, you know, Maynard talks about having seen this thing. Now Keffer has witnessed this thing. And as Keffer said, you know, there was this newspaper article a couple of months ago about, you know, something living in hyperspace. And the screenshot is available on (laughs) B5AudioGuide.com's Tumblr. So you can see all of these headlines that were planted back in season one. And here's one that's beginning to take
1: root and start to grow. Is something living in hyperspace? Yep.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, it also justifies Keffer's sort of I mean, he seems at the end to be very, very strong, strong willed in that he is going to figure out what the heck this thing is. And I I think that that was another thing that I liked about the character. It gave him a little bit more purpose or backbone or something Mm -hmm. like that to just feel so strongly about something rather than floating along with everybody else. Yeah. Well, is there anything else you guys want to touch on before we pop over into hyperspace? Or <laughs> here I'm talking about hyperspace. Pop <laughs> through through the jump gate into spoiler space. I hope we don't end up in hyperspace.
2: I think I'm good.
1: Uh, yeah, me too. I think that this is a this is a. I, w- I was not looking forward to the episode. It is not as good as I want it to be but it was better than I remembered and the you're right Erica the character stuff is what makes this a keeper.
0: Here here. All right. Well, We've got some homework for all of you guys. For next time, we will be watching The Long Dark, so be sure to see that before the next time you join us. Um, But also in the meantime, please visit us online at b5audioguide.com. Remember, we have threads both for spoiler-phobes and for spoiler-fanatics. So depending on whether you've seen the show or not, there is a place for you to play and talk about the episodes. Please try to do that for us. And then also on Twitter and Tumblr, you can find us at b5audioguide. So... Until the next time, let's pop through into, not hyper, but spoiler space. They're
2: shadows.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, dear listener, that's Chip editing himself again to make sure he doesn't say the word shadow before the jump gate.
2: Yeah, well, (laughs) you have have to edit me as well, but we'll talk about that in a second. When do they first uh,
0: when do they first get called shadows because I am getting sick and tired of like trying to silence myself and censor myself. When does that happen? Someone tell it's, me. I think when it's when still I can a breathe
2: few episodes away when when Delenn finally like has the first of the councils with all of the B5 staff to say they were called the shadows. I I think it's going to be a while yet.
1: Maybe maybe even they may actually get called that in The Coming of Shadows, which I cannot wait for. We're just a few episodes away from that. But uh, but yeah, yeah it's, it's, so. it's still going to be a while. I'm going to have to censor myself, literally.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, we'll get there. We'll get through it together, you guys.
1: <laughs> uh, at the time of recording, by the way, at the time of recording this podcast, um, some friends of ours just got through Severed Dreams. And I am so freaking impatient (laughs) to get there. Uh, It
0: is really cool seeing people who have never watched this show before. You know, it's it's decades. Get to those points. Yeah. Having the same just like jaw on the floor. Holy, you know what moments about something that happened so long ago that, you know, I, I feel strongly about. So it's, mm-hmm. it's it's nice to know that the show still packs a punch. And I can't wait for Steven to get there and experience that as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: But then but that's like a year off. Yeah. You guys. So so back to a distant star.
0: Uh, Back to a distant star. So there are a few things in this in this story that that point us forward, even though it was kind of a standalone episode, there's there are seeds and things. I mean, Mm -hmm. besides just seeing shadow ships. Um, uh, Some of the things I noticed had to do with with Sheridan and, and not so much giant plot things, but just things that kind of made me giggle a little bit inside. For example, when he's first talking to Maynard He's saying, um, you know, this is – I can make a difference here. It's important. And he still at this point hasn't revealed that part of his mission here is to uh, to kind of spy on people and figure out who mm-hmm. is who is loyal, who is not, what was going on with the assassination right. of, of the president. Um, so I, I feel like behind his performance, whether he knew it or not, I, I feel like there was a little bit of, of – him wishing he could tell Maynard how important it was. Like I'm not just a desk jockey. I'm a spy. Like I think he wanted to say that, but he couldn't. Right. Um, and then later on, he, he he spends a good amount of time cutting down politics when he's when he's raving and ranting uh, to Ivanova. <laughs> but boy, oh boy, little does he know he is on the road to becoming like, the ultimate politician. Sort Indeed.
2: Of. Yeah, I saw a little of that as well. I started talking in pre spoiler space. Chip's going to have to edit it out. Um, the conversation with Garibaldi right after he talks to Maynard, where part of it is he's a little bit peeved. Maynard has sort of shaken him up a bit and made him feel like he shouldn't be here after all. And so he doesn't want to deal with the petty stuff. But I also wondered if a little of that was sort of pushing Garibaldi a little more to his limits, trying to, you know, figure out these people, figure out exactly, you know, what pushes them, you know, what getting them angry enough to react more naturally i wondered if there was a little of that in there i may be reading too much into it but it did cross my mind at the time
0: he's canny enough to do something like that i, mm-hmm. I hadn't thought of it but uh, i like that idea and it is now part of my head canon thank you <laughs>
1: <laughs> you're welcome <laughs> <laughs> um i like uh, another uh, sheridan bit you know sheridan's not just going to become the super politician but he's also going to become a super general and, uh, mm-hmm. and of course in the real world generals and politicians can be sometimes interchangeable but um when he's sending out the pilots to their deaths uh, mm-hmm. To to their potential deaths, and you know he is uh, he, he he does think he's lost too, and his relief when Kefir makes it back is yeah. uh, significant, and that's great. But, um, just on I was on YouTube last night checking out different scenes from Babylon Five's history, and I happened to watch the scene from the Long Night when Sheridan sends White Star fourteen, captained by Heisenberg excuse me <laughs> uh brian cranston uh, of breaking bad fame uh when cool. he sends that white star on a suicide mission knowing that they're going to die and he's saying you know it's the it's it's the sort of same kind of feeling here uh sheridan asked the the star fury pilots uh to be prepared to sacrifice their lives and it's you know he in a couple of years he's going to ask the crew of that white star to definitively sacrifice their lives. Um, So nice little echo there. I do like it. I I do like it being demonstrated that Sheridan is a leader who has to make the tough calls sometimes.
0: Yeah. Although one thing I kind of forgot to mention in pre-spoiler territory was that scene um, prepping for the rescue. I felt went on way too long. That was another bit of the direction that I just thought was not... I mean, his his performance was very good, and I I, I, I hadn't noticed that future echo before, and I really like that. Uh, but I still thought that the scene was, was a little on the long, a little too long, I, and too that a, was the a, one a, point
2: a, where they had to get the science in. I think that was the you know even though mm-hmm. overall they did a really good job, this was the pivotal point where they had to make it clear just how hyperspace works. Um, so I don't know that they could have tightened it up or not. It could have used it if they could. I'm just not sure that they were able to.
1: Yeah, and I'm going to assume that we had a lot more fighters involved than just the five or six that were supposed to come back um, that were going off in different directions in hyperspace looking for the Cortez because that was a lot of people in that circle, Mm -hmm, in that conversation. And then it's like we're only talking about five or six ships at the end. So I've got to assume that... My headcanon is that the different fighter wings went off in different directions, and once they figured or out— Or maybe
2: a second wing was ready if the first wing got lost?
1: Maybe, uh, but once they figured out that the cortez, where the Cortez was in the general direction, all the others came home or something like that. That's the only thought that I've got.
2: Or could have joined the line and made it longer, sense. but I don't know. But it, they didn't
0: yep well speaking of the folks on that line um we've got Keffer,
2: who here mm-hmm.
0: as i mentioned before we see the sort of the seeds of his obsession with the shadows which of course eventually will lead to his doom
1: you're so. dead <laughs> zeta leader
0: mm-hmm yeah. <laughs> so yes Sorry. and then later it's also sort of him that 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 blows the lid off of this whole thing and you know is that the point where we get to start seeing
2: shadows i can't remember but <laughs> but when he yeah when he gets the footage back and it gets put on on the news yeah <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: anything else that you guys noticed that's uh coming from the future
2: i felt there were a lot of echoes uh like this was the first appearance of some of the um sort of things that'll get repeated throughout the episode. The, the idea that the bar the mimbari never tell the whole truth. Um, I'm not sure if this is the very first time it's been stated, so point blank um, this in the in the show, but you know we had you know Sheridan pointing out, you know, she told us this, but the Mabari never tell you the whole truth. Um, that's something that will of course happen over and over again um, during the upcoming uh, shows upcoming episodes and seasons. Um, also, this is, I think, sort of the first time we get the, the in the right place at the right time. That's something else that that sentiment is going to be revisited and echoed so many different ways um, in the upcoming uh, seasons, two and three, especially. So yeah. I felt that, you know, those those kinds of things, thematic, I guess, is the word that these that these themes are really beginning to be brought forward and emphasized a little more.
1: Yeah, I also like that we are getting very carefully introduced to the fact that the Minbari are distrustful of Delin and that it's only going to get worse. But I, I like that it's seeded now before we get to the point where um, she gets thrown off of the Grey Council.
0: Yeah, actually, just talking about our our friends getting excited about episodes down the road, when she was having that showdown, well, sort of showdown with the other Mimbari, and he was saying, you know, I think maybe I should ask the Grey Council. In my head, I just see her smashing the the stick over her knee and <laughs> breaking the Grey Council, and I was just like... Oh, it starts here. This is this is the beginning of, of that road. I mean, and maybe it started a while back when she sort of defied what they told her to do. But mm-hmm. um, you know, you can kind of draw a straight line, and it definitely goes through this episode.
2: I think we're seeing more of. Delenn's always had authority, I think, throughout season one and this first, and and now in season two. But here. I feel like there's a difference between authority and backbone, and I think we're beginning to see her having to develop that backbone to hold on to what she is trying to do and what she is trying to accomplish with the transformation and working with the Vorlons to try and combat the coming war with the Shadows.
1: That's a really good point. That's a really good point. Because power and authority, um, there are different kinds of authority. There's moral authority. There's legitimate authority, which comes from the position that you hold and things like that. And D'Lynn's been coasting on legitimate authority. And it's been questioned for the first time. Mm -hmm. By the time she gets to the point where she is breaking the council, she will have that moral authority in spades.
0: Yeah, I love the idea that we're seeing her develop that backbone. And I think everything we said in pre-spoiler territory about just sort of the the way she's been rocked back a little bit and her look of doubt when she's talking about the universe. Yeah, you're absolutely right. This is what we are seeing there are the growing pains of a backbone (laughs) forming. That's exactly what's happening. Mm -hmm. Well, anything else you guys uh, can think of that you want to talk about that's spoilery or should we just uh, head off to the rim?
1: Uh, Just a note. In case you're wondering, you can go to the Lurker's Guide at uh, midwinter.com/lurk and go to the page for this episode and you will find a recipe for banyakauda.
0: <gasps> Seriously? Seriously. I'm so there. My birthday is <laughs> coming up in a couple of months, I think maybe maybe there'll be a birthday dish for me. Mm-hmm. How does how
1: does uh, Stephen stand on anchovies?
0: No, they're they're meat, so so that's uh, so it'll be all mine. That's how that's how it works. All right. Well, on that uh, drool-worthy note, I think it's time <laughs> for us to uh, to take our leave. Uh, once again, be sure to to come and visit us online and let us know what you uh, what you folks who have seen the whole show think about this. Did you notice anything that that we missed? That's that's coming down the pike. Um, and the next time we will be back to talk about the Long Dark. So until then, this is Erica in Edmonton, Shannon in Durham.
1: And Chip, still anti-cowboy boots.
0: (laughs) And you've been listening to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5.